Hello and welcome to JOSPT Insights, the podcast that aims to help you translate quality research to quality practice. I'm Claire Ardern, the Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Orthopaedic and Sports Physical Therapy. It's great to have you listening today. Today on JOSPT Insights, we're talking clinical practice guidelines. Dr. Amy Arundale, physical therapist from the Brooklyn Nets, gives you the lowdown on how clinical practice guidelines are developed and how the information can benefit you, the clinician, and the patients, athletes, and coaches that you work with. Dr. Karen Litzy of Karen Litzy Physical Therapy and the very popular Healthy, Wealthy, and Smart podcast asks the questions on today's episode. We're diving into the knee and anterior cruciate ligament injury prevention guideline that you can find for free on the JOSPT website. Over to you, Karen and Amy. Dr. Arendale, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. All right, so first question on these clinical practice guidelines, why do we need them? <laughs> well, it's a good question. Um, <clears throat> ACL injuries, you know, take a big spotlight in the media. They get a lot of attention when, you know, pro athletes uh, pull up with an ACL injury. But ACL injuries aren't like the entire picture. In addition to just ACLs, um, you have MCL, meniscus, uh, which are also quite common, both in professional sports, but also in youth and adult sports. So if we think about, you know, the incidents, say just take ACL injuries, which are often cited as about 200 to 250,000 per year in the U.S. alone. And that's just the ACLs that are reported. You know, ACL injuries are commonly associated with osteoarthritis development. So long-term joint health is impacted. Um, That has huge implications on a person's lifestyle. Clinical practice guidelines are a fantastic resource for clinicians. So they take this really broad spectrum of research and condense it down. Um, So not only are there short summaries of the research that's included uh, in the clinical practice guidelines, but then there's also recommendations. So it's a really easy chance for a clinician to get this great quick snapshot of what's in the literature and what's the most recommended practices. In addition, you know, this guideline has uh, two additional handouts, one for clinicians and one for patients. And then it's also got associated videos. So there's both a court sport-based video and then a field-based video so that, you know, these can be used by both clinicians to kind of learn and see an example of, you know, a prevention program, but it's also then easy material to give to patients, give to athletes, parents, teachers, coaches, uh, you name it. And so one of the goals with this guideline in particular uh, was that it was really accessible. So it's not something that's going to be going over the head of someone who is not in the medical field. That was our goal. And we actually had a couple coaches uh, read it and review it and give us some feedback on it. Um, the reviewers come from across across the world, around the world, um, and across the spectrum of, of kind of medical doctors, PTs. Um, like I said, we had a couple coaches read it. We had parents read it. Uh, so we really made an attempt to get some feedback from a wide range of people um, to make this the best resource we could. And why was that important to you to get that wide range of people? Well, I mean, going back to the impact that these knee injuries have, there's a lot of information out there uh, and there's more coming out every single day. Uh, 
but not, you know, we kind of know there's a five to seven year lag between, um, you know, information being published and it actually getting out and being in, in practice. Uh, so to try and kind of condense that to try and really make a uh, clinical impact um, and like I said, make this a resource. So it's not just clinicians who are putting this into practice. So let's say I'm a physical therapist. I don't have access to a court. I don't have access to a field. I have a clinic and I don't have all the bells and whistles. What do I do with these clinical practice guidelines with my patient? Um, you know, the really kind of cool thing about most of the injury prevention programs that are, you know, were reviewed that are part of these guidelines is they require very little if no equipment. Um, you know, some of them will require cones. Um, some of them might require, say, you know, some of the soccer-based ones require a soccer ball, uh, but very minimal equipment. So, you know, within a clinic, you could teach them the fundamentals. If you've got a little bit of space, kind of the fundamentals, walk them through, you know, this injury prevention program. Um, so, you know, one of the phrases I often use is talk through, walk through. So sit down, you know, have, uh, you know, some of the descriptions, um, if you've got, you know, some of the pictures. So you can talk through the, your, with your patient, kind of say, you know, here's what we're doing. Here's why. Here's some of the evidence for, you know, this. We have good evidence that these preventions work. Uh, and then here, walk, talk them through them. And then walk them through them so that they have to do it themselves. And then have them repeat it so that they walk through it kind of on their own volition. So that they really kind of have some of that practice, have a really good understanding of, of why they're doing it and then what they're going to do. Uh, so it's actually not all that hard. You don't need a ton of space to do the teaching piece. You know, to actually perform it, you might need a little bit more space. Uh, but it's actually pretty easy, easy within a, a small clinic. You could definitely teach teach these programs. And why is it important for the patients to know the why, not just the what and the how? Well, so one of the big things that comes up throughout these guidelines is compliance. You've got to do it for it to work. You know, you've got to, you know, there, so there's some of these programs more... Some of these programs are more effective than others, um, but the bottom line is you just have you have to do it. Having the understanding of why you're doing something, you know, you could teach them this. They could go out, they could do it, you know, once or twice, and then just leave it by the way, wayside. But if they really understand, you know, this is the impact that it's going to have on you. If you're fourteen, a fourteen-year-old female soccer player, you're at an incredibly high risk, but. If you kind of understand, you know, this is why I'm doing this. This is how it's going to help me. It's going to help me probably in terms of preventing injuries. It may help me in terms of, you know, my own physical performance. That why is really going to help it stick to, okay, you know, now I'm 15. You know, this team doesn't do it, but hey, maybe I can bring this to my new team and now I've got shared knowledge. That why really, really is important in compliance. And one of the things that struck me about the guidelines was the age at which you want these athletes to start performing these preventative programs. And from what I read, it's around the age of 12. There's some really interesting studies that are included in the guidelines. Um, one that actually did some modeling um, using data from Australia, looking at, you know, if you uh, looked at various age groups, what would be the most 
cost-effective. And really, that study found that starting at age 12 in high-risk sports like soccer, um, it's Australia, so Australian rules, football, rugby, um, basketball, Starting, you know, in that twelve years old, um, can can is really cost effective and, and effective. In fact, those younger age groups, particularly on the women's side, you know, below eighteen, prevention programs actually have a bigger impact than maybe some older in some of the older age groups. And I, I think it's interesting you brought up the word cost. So let's talk about that because from a marketing value meaning we want to market these injury prevention programs to teams with children starting as young as 12 up to professional sports. So oftentimes a cost value is very important. So how do we communicate that uh, in the in the best way to the stakeholders? The cost of performance, you know, what if we look at cost of performance to the athletes, the risks of performing these pro- programs are very low. So in terms of for the athlete, the like kind of risk-benefit ratio is extraordinarily on the benefit side. Um, if we talk about, you know, economic costs, well, if we talk about, you know, PT's time, you know, that is a cost. Um, but in the you know, flip side, the costs of an ACL reconstruction, rehabilitation, uh, time off work, and then the long-term joint health. Um, so the downstream effects of OA or the need for a total knee replacement, those are huge costs. You know, if we're talking from a PT perspective, like you say, these are marketable things. So, you know, maybe it's something that a clinic can, you know, run run prevention camps or come in um, and, you know, maybe it's an hour of a PT's time to spend with a team. Maybe they spend an hour a month later touching base. It can be a connection into, you know, a club. Yeah, and it also seems like it is a cost savings, like you said, looking at downstream costs, not just for the patient, but for the whole medical system as well. And in this day and age, when that is a big topic of how can we save money, I think doing a preventative program starting at at any age, but certainly starting while, while you're young, if that can save those downstream effects, then perhaps this is something that insurance companies can be looking at for reimbursement. For sure. For sure. And actually, you know, like in some some of the countries, some of this research is actually funded by insurance, like kind of national insurance companies. Okay. So we've talked about the why, the how, the what, and the who. So now let's talk about tips to communicate all of this, not only to the athlete, but to their team. Because as we've alluded to, you've got the athlete, you may have parents, you have coaches, you may have strength and conditioning, you may have trainers. So what are your maybe three top tips for communicating the need to follow these practice guidelines and the need for prevention programs? It'd be education, collaboration, and follow-up. Education being that why. You know, helping coaches and parents teachers, athletes understand why they're doing the, this, this program. The collaboration um, really comes down to, you know, working with where they are. So say you're working with, uh, you know, a soccer team. Um, maybe they're in Washington State where it rains a lot. You know, what are some of the barriers to, you know, them performing this? Well, maybe they don't want to lie down in wet grass. 
So maybe some of the exercises that involve you lying down, you know, they're going to be a lot less compliant with. You know, collaborating with them so you're also not coming in and stepping on anybody's toes, but you're working with them to say, okay, how can we make this feasible for you? What are the barriers? How do we overcome some of those barriers? How do we help you make this part of your routine? But working with them to kind of really make that a collaborative effort. And then the follow-up is important. You know, maybe you work with them for, you know, three or four weeks. They start, you know, getting it part of their routine. You know, making sure there's that regular touch point to come back and say, how's everything going? Are you still doing it? Okay, you're not. Why? How can we bring it back in? Or, yes, you are. Okay, that's great. You know, is there, are there things that you need help with? Are there questions? Um, or maybe everything's going smoothly and then you've just had that open line of communication. So yeah, education, um, collaboration and follow-up would be my top three. And all of that to me sounds like great ways to increase compliance and increase adherence to these programs. It is not a one and done. You don't have one session with the team or the athlete or the parent, and then you don't see them again. Is there anything that we've missed that you want to make sure that the listeners know about these clinical practice guidelines? Just use them. (laughs) Read them, use them, hand them out, you know, give them to your grandma or more importantly, your niece and nephew. Um, You know, encourage the use of the videos, especially. They're a great resource um, and the one-pagers for patients. You know, it also, it doesn't just lay out, you know, what's in the literature, it also stands for a great kind of where do we go from here. You know, right now we have a lot of studies on, on you know, ACL injury prevention in particular, um, but not actually, you know, we've got more reviews than we have randomized uh, control trials. So, you know, it also this guideline also kind of calls to action, you know, researchers to say, you know, here's where, you know, there are some holes, you know, here's where we need to go. Uh, so, you know, it is got both a guideline in that that way for clinicians, uh, but it's also, you know, can be looked at maybe a little bit as like a state of the union. Here's where we are right now. Here's where clinical practice should be. Uh, and here's also a launch point for where we can go in the future. And this was a huge collaborative effort between you and, and a large group, a large team of researchers and reviewers. And so I can only assume that it sparked a lot of hmm, maybe we should be doing more. Like you said, we have this open door now of what we do know and where we need to go. So I look forward to future research from you and, and the people on this team. Thanks. Yeah, it's a, it was an honor to work with this group. Uh, you know, it's a, some heavy hitters from the world of ACL uh, research and ACL injury prevention in, in particular. Uh, so it was an honor to kind of be able to work with them. And I think from everyone in the group, as well as everyone who reviewed it and a wide number of uh, researchers across the, you know, across the world, this will be updated every uh, few years. We'll be able to kind of incorporate everything that's that's new, um, you know, within that period of time. The guidelines are available free full text on the JOSPT website, as well as on the Academy of Orthopedic Physical Therapy sections website. So even if you don't have access to a lot of uh, journals, you should definitely be able to get this, um, you know, free without any issue, as well as all the patient handouts and the videos. And that is great news for all of us. So Dr. Arendale, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Thanks so much for having me. Oh, 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 oh
for listening to this episode of JOSPT Insights. For more discussion of the issues in musculoskeletal rehabilitation that are relevant to your practice, subscribe to JOSPT Insights on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, Google, or your favourite podcast app. If you like JOSPT Insights, help others find us. Tell your friends and colleagues and rate and review us. To keep up to date with all the latest JOSPT content, be sure to follow us on Twitter, we're at JOSPT, and Facebook, we're JOSPT Official. Talk with you next time.